All right, let's turn to the book of Acts, chapter 4. We're going to start reading in verse number 23, pick up where we left off last time we were in Acts, which was on Wednesday, well, sort of. We're on Wednesday talking about the filling of the Spirit, and uh, hopefully that was a blessing to you, and uh, we're going to pick up at uh, verse 23 of Acts 4 when the apostles, Peter and John, were released from detention. Uh, which in this case was, a, was a, a rather innocuous kind of detention. It was uh, stressful, I'm sure. But really there was no real punishment other than threatening uh, words. And we know it will not remain that way. Of course, if you know the book of Acts, you know it does not remain that way. But anyhow, uh, we'll start reading in verse number 23 and we'll read down to verse number 31. All right, the Bible says, And being let go... They went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, Thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. Now pause pause right there just a second. How many of you regularly look at in, uh, social media in some way. It's okay to raise your hand. It's okay. Be it Twitter, a.k.a. X, or Facebook. It, all the generation, my generation and older, my, my generation and, and the people in their 30s and below, Facebook is kind of like, you know, kind of like blasé, you know. Now it's TikTok and it's Instagram, you know. But anyhow... If you look at that, what you'll come across sometimes is you'll see these different preachers and apologists. How many of you have kind of seen this? Apologists that talk, you know, they'll, they'll video their, you know, their opportunities to witness to people or different kind of seminars or conferences when they're having debates and things like that. Just be, be, be careful. There are a lot of people out there that are representing Christianity and probably are true believers in Christ, as far as that goes, that do not believe in a literal creation. There are a lot of them who do not take the first few chapters of Genesis as literal history. And the number of people that take it as literal history is diminishing. It used to be just commonly accepted, and it's becoming less and less and less and less. But look, you can't take... Uh, basically, that, that type of person is a person who believes in evolution. They believe that God basically created the Big Bang, in essence. Uh, God created all the matter in the universe and put it out there, and then there was a Big Bang, and it evolved over billions of years into what we have today. But that's not what this verse says. These apostles and this church, believing the scripture of the Old Testament, said, Thou art God which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. That means God made all of that. It's an act of direct creation. That's, what, that's the theological term. That God did not make matter and allowed it to evolve or even directed its evolution. No, no, God directly created it as it is. And that's what the Bible teaches. That is what the Bible says. Now, to some people, I think the reason why they, they balk at that is because they feel sheepish and shameful in the face of such nobility 
as the scientific community, the intelligentsia of our, of our time. And so they compromise this truth. But the Bible's, the Bible's unambiguous, unambiguous. The Bible says, in, for in six days, the Lord made the, made the heavens and the earth and all that in them is. I mean, that's plain. Six days. Not six eons of time, not six periods, six days. Okay, moving on. Verse 25. Who by the mouth of thy servant David hast said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Quotation from Psalm 2, really quick. Notice, the church believed in what we call verbal inspiration. What do I mean by that? They said here that God spoke by the mouth of David. They believed that what they were reading in Psalm 2, even though David spoke it, was not just the words of David, but it was the very words of God. That's verbal inspiration, okay? They believe that. That's why they're praying it, all right? Verse 27, for of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were gathered together, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word, by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken, where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your church here gathered together, assembled here in this place. Thank you, Lord, for your grace in our lives. Thank you for this uh, passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 4 that we're studying here tonight. Lord, I pray that you would help us to... Uh, to understand it and to receive the lessons that are found in it. I pray that you would further strengthen your church, Lord, as we uh, look at your word. Lord, you know the things that are needed among us, Lord, as individuals and as a body. Lord, this is your church. It's not my church. It's not their church, but it's the church of Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do the work through this, this ministry of preaching and teaching your word to help your people to grow and strengthen them, Lord, to be, to, to be faithful, to be firm, to stand fast, and to, do, to know and to do the will of the Lord. I pray that you would uh, help our church, Lord, as special as we think of the anniversary coming up. Lord, that you would give us a vision and a clear uh, conception of what you would have us to do in the future. But also, Lord, allow us to, uh, to glory in what you've done in the past as well. So, Lord, we commit this time to you. Lord, I certainly need your help. Please help me to help your people. And I pray that you would teach your people. In Jesus' name, amen. What's interesting in verse number 23 is these apostles are let go. They go to their own company, and they basically give a testimony about what had happened to them. And again, this this event, this persecution event was a minor event really in the, in the big picture. 
compared to what happens. I mean, not even talking about what happens in the book of Acts, and there's plenty of that with Stephen and Saul of Tarsus and all that. But think about Christians being fed the, fed the lions and being a part of the, the, the Roman uh, gladiator games and all of that in the Colosseums of Rome. I mean, it got way worse using Christians, the emperor of Rome using Christians as torches to uh, street lamps. It's street lamps. This, this actually happened historically. And this is after the book of Acts. So persecution is just getting started. But what's interesting is in verse 24, they tell the church what's, what happens. And the church, even though, even though it was only Peter and John that were really affected by this, because they were, they were the kind of the faces, the voices of, uh, of Christ preaching the gospel, Yet the church as a whole is moved. It's not, the, the, church, the church was functioning as a body. When one part of the body was affected with something, the rest of the church was affected with, with that same thing to the point that they, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. So the apostles were being persecuted, the two, but yet the whole church was moved. The whole church was moved. And then in verse number 24 as well, not just 24, but down through their prayer. Their prayer is really about boldness. We'll see that in a minute. But notice how seriously the church took these threatenings. Notice how seriously. What, what, what had been threatened? What had been threatened is that the, the rulers had told them, had forbidden that they speak at all in the name of Jesus. And the church took that seriously. Do you know Why? Because the church understood and knew their mission. And the core, as we've already studied, the core mission of the church, its purpose for its existence, was not what's inside of these walls. It was doing the work of the Lord outside of the walls. And so for, for the authorities to forbid them from speaking in the name of Jesus... It was a, an attack on the very mission of the church, and they took it very seriously. And you know what? This church, by evidence by their prayer, was not content to be silent believers. This church was not content to just say, well, they told us we can't say anything, so I guess we just need to focus our attention on edifying one another and you know, speaking to each other. You know, there are many, listen, communist China, Laos, Vietnam, you can go to Muslim countries are this way too, it's okay if you have church among the believers. It's when you tell other people outside is where you get in trouble. In Muslim countries, is it, in many, many Muslim countries, it's legal to have church services. It's just not legal to tell anyone else about Jesus. But see, here, here's the thing. This church took that threat seriously because, as I said, it attacked the very core the very mission of the church, and they, were, they understood the mission that Christ gave them to the point that they were not willing to be a silent Christian. How many churches are like that? Oh, man. We want our church to grow. To grow. Lord willing, in, at the beginning, beginning, excuse me, I'm having a hard time talking, at the beginning of our uh, uh, revival, anniversary revival. I hope to, I hope to unveil and, and talk about a theme for this year. We want our church to grow. 
But you know what? The church's mission is to tell other people about Jesus, not to grow. God does the growing. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's the words of Christ. He builds the church. He's the one that adds to it. And I'm praying and I ask you to pray as well that God would add to our number and God would multiply our number. But our mission is not to add to our church. The scriptural mission is to speak in the name of Jesus. That's what they're doing. The the scriptural mission is to tell people about Jesus and to serve the Lord in that way. That's the scriptural mission. You see so many churches around here. I talk about it so much, but it's, it's just, I grew up here. I mean, I see it everywhere, everywhere. Churches, most churches in Greenville, South Carolina, grow by just inviting other Christians to be a part of their church. And the idea of the mission of the church, which is evangelism, taking the gospel and putting it in the lap and before the faces and in the ears of people who don't, don't know the Lord, is something that's not, it's not common. People just don't do it a lot. They invite people to church. They want their church to grow. But they do that in a way that is that goes around the Great Commission. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is this church is, they're unwilling to be silent Christians. They're unwilling to just settle for inviting people they know are already friendly to their beliefs to join their membership. That's not what they're doing. (laughs) They're, They're, as it were, storming the gates of hell. That's what the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. That's the church is, is going forward on the offensive. We need to, listen, we don't need to try to be like every other church, right? That's not our, our, our goal is to be like, like the scripture teaches, right? So that means our focus and our mission has to be that way as well. And I know we invite people to come to church because we want an opportunity to witness to them. And there, are, in this culture especially, there are many people who, who seek the Lord by going to church, right? They're, even if they're not yet believers. A good example of that is Will, who came and he, he was seeking the Lord and wasn't really sure where he was with the Lord and didn't know what he didn't know. <laughs> and so he came to church and we had an opportunity to talk to him and witness to him. And we hope at some point that bears fruit in his life for, for salvation. But but really, it's, it's the gospel is our mission. But notice what they did in verse 24. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. You know what this is? This is corporate prayer. This is corporate prayer. Now, we know that the primary kind of prayer that we should all be engaged in is private prayer. Private prayer. The pinnacle of of your prayer life is not when the pastor calls on you to pray in front of the congregation. The pinnacle of your prayer life ought to be what you talk to God about in private. that, That is your prayer life. That is your prayer life. But there's, there's leading in prayer, there's private prayer, and then there's corporate prayer. Now, in corporate prayer, sometimes we call on somebody to lead as we pray, but the idea is all of us are praying together, and just one person is the voice. 
but we're all in with one accord, with one heart, agreeing to pray together. Let's look at a couple of verse, a couple of uh, verses in the scripture. Look at Matthew chapter eighteen, if you would. Verse number nineteen. Now, this is, this is definitely, uh, if you look at verse 17, this is definitely dealing with church discipline. Uh, the principles the Lord gave even before there was a proper church, that is, the body of Christ was fully, fully developed like we find in Acts 2. But, but anyway, the Lord's, the Lord's dealing primar- primarily with that. That's the context. But there's, there's something else that's here as well in verse 19. Jesus says, again, I say unto you. Remember, again, that means he's following along in a context of what he was talking about with church discipline. But the principle is, 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 remains here. Again, I say unto you, verse 19, that if two, two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything, here's the key, that they shall ask, that's prayer. Now, the context is church discipline, but an extension of that is when people are gathered together, are gathered together to ask something of the Lord. It says, it shall be done for them of my Father, which is in heaven. Here, the Lord establishes corporate prayer, that we should have times in our church in which we all gather together to pray. Now, here's what happens on Wednesday night. On Wednesday night, we have prayer requests, and then we call on one person usually to pray over our prayer request, and that person leads in prayer. And that's, in a way, corporate prayer, but I think what's happening in Acts chapter 4 is something even more than that. It's not just a prayer. It is, if I can make a distinction, corporate prayer. It is a a season, a time of prayer in which the church gathers to pray. The Lord continues, It shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. That speaks of authority. That speaks of authority. The church's authority. Christ is with them in their prayer, with them in their decisions as it is church discipline in this context. Listen, I just, there's another one. Let's look at Acts 12 real quick. I don't want to spend too much time here because there's some other things I want to say. Acts 12, it happens again. Verse number five. (coughs) Says this, Peter therefore (coughs) was kept in prison, but Prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. Notice the church. That's, a, that's, a, that's what, what you call a collective word. It includes many individuals. The church is praying for Peter together. I just want to say this. Corporate prayer needs to be an important part of Choice Hills Baptist Church. And I'm not referring to a time when we say a prayer, but when we meet to pray together. This need, the, in, the, in, the, in the vein of the cottage prayer meetings, where we're just praying. We're just getting together 
to pray. This needs to be an important part. That is a first century church characteristic. Getting together to pray. Not to preach, not to teach, and not even really to sing as our primary purpose, but to pray. That need, th- this church needs to have that kind of, kind of prayer life, but a corporate prayer life. It needs to be an important part of our church. And I'm not saying it's not an important part of our church, but it needs to grow. It needs to grow. And hopefully we're going to, you know, the cottage prayer meetings is a good opportunity to get involved in that. You say, well, that's just a prayer, that's just a prayer meeting. That's one of the most important meetings the church has is when we, with one heart and one mind, call out to God all at the same time for the, for the same thing. Now, in a minute, I want to talk to you about the content of some of those corporate prayers. But I do want to go back to Acts 4 and look at verse number 28. Of course, 25, 26, 27 is all a a reference to Psalm 2. And maybe we'll have a chance to look at Psalm 2 together. Psalm 2 is a fantastic psalm. I love Psalm 2. And, uh, but they quote Psalm 2 and then they apply it to their, to their time there. And then in verse, 20, verse 27, read it, it says, For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. So, What Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Jews and the the Romans did to Jesus was determined to be done. Determined to be done. Look at chapter 2, since you're right there, verse 23. You see the same thing. This is in Peter's message on Pentecost. Referring to Jesus in verse 23 of chapter 2 says, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, Ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Determinate counsel and foreknowledge. Those aren't, listen, those aren't bad words. (laughs) Those aren't bad words. That means God determined beforehand something would be done. All right? Look at chapter, chapter 3, verse 17. says this, And now, brethren, I wot that through ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers, referring to, of course, the cross. But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he has so fulfilled. Three times in three chapters, the apostles and the church is talking about how that all those things that happened to Christ were determined by the Lord beforehand. So here's the question I have to ask. If the Lord determined that the Jews would reject Christ and that that Herod and Pontius Pilate and then the Romans would set themselves, it's in Psalm 2, against Christ, are they accountable? After all, God determined that they would do it. And this is... This is a reality. This is one of those things in Scripture that both exist simultaneously. Let me show you a few verses that that kind of hit on this uh, this truth. Look at Matthew 26. Matthew 
Matthew 26, verse number... Twenty-four, The Lord at the Last Supper is referring to Judas Iscariot. Verse 24 says, The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. This is the only time I'm aware of in the Bible in which God says somebody, someone's future is so bad that it, would, it is better that they had never existed. <laughs> wow. This is speaking of Judas, but notice both things. You see both things. You see God determining something. That's the it is written. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him. In other words, some thousand years before Christ was, was born, it was determined and then written in Scripture that Christ would go to the cross and Christ would be betrayed. It's written in the Psalms. But then on the, in the same verse, the Lord says, Woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So it was determined that Judas would betray Christ. But on the same hand, Judas is also simultaneously fully accountable for doing what he did to Christ. Both things exist simultaneously. That's what you have to understand. We, talk, we call it the sovereignty of God. I don't use that term very often. But if you want to use that term to refer to the fact that God determines some things and overrules things in advance, that's fine. But the fact of God determining things and men doing those things that God has determined and yet still being accountable to Him is something that exists simultaneously. Some, here's the problem. People want to, want to do one or the other. They want it to be a binary selection where it has to be one. God determines it. It's called determinism, where God determines it, and then everybody just does what, they, what God has programmed them to do and determined for them to do, and then God sends them to hell to boot. And then on the other hand, you have other people who don't believe. They go to the opposite extreme, and, and uh, the, the fact that God determines things is, is kind of diminished, and everything is about human responsibility. But the fact is, both exist. In fact, in this one verse, you see both. So the Lord determined all these things that would happen, but Judas, for his part, was acting according to his own lusts and covetousness. Judas had no idea what he was doing. He was just, he was just being wicked. He wanted money from the rulers. He was willing to deliver Jesus to get it. And in fact, John 13 says that Satan was in him doing this. But despite the fact that Judas was doing what he was doing, and it came out of his own heart and his own will and his own desires and his own covetousness, despite the fact of what he was doing, the Lord, uh, and I should say, despite the fact of what he was doing and the fact that God had determined it to be done, the Lord declares Judas is guilty. And the Lord declares he would be punished. And so they both simultaneously exist. So when we read in Acts chapter 2, these, the terms determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, even though these two things are different, one is knowing before 
and not determining, right? That's foreknowledge. If you think of foreknowledge as, say somehow, uh, say somehow you got tomorrow's newspaper and you read about a house fire in the newspaper. That's foreknowledge. You didn't cause, I mean, if you caused the house fire, that'd be different. But if, if you, read about the, tomorrow, you read tomorrow's newspaper and knew about a house fire in advance, that's foreknowledge. That doesn't mean you caused it. But, but see, those that err on the side of human responsibility, they, they, they reduce determine, the determination of God to just foreknowledge. But the Bible says both. Determinant counsel means that God has chosen to do something. And no one can, can thwart it. No one can change it. In our text here, the Bible says in uh, Acts 2, the Lord refers to the hands of the Jews who are responsible for killing Christ as wicked hands, showing how they're guilty. So despite the fact that God had determined it to be done, Judas was guilty. Now, here's why I want to, I just want to point out a few things. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 10. We'll get back to Acts in just a second, I promise. Isaiah 10 and verse 6. Just a few examples of this. Then we'll look at Genesis chapter 45. Isaiah 10 verse, well, let's look at verse number 5, if you would. Isaiah 10.5 says, O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff in their hand is mine in indignation. I will send him, the Assyrian, against an hypocritical nation, that's Israel, and against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil and to take prey and to tread them down like the mire in the streets. So here's what the Lord says. The Lord determined that the nation of Assyria would destroy Israel. That actually happened. That's the determinate counsel of God. The Lord did that because of Israel's rebellion and idolatry. All right? But there's a flip side. Verse 7. Howbeit he, that's Assyria, the Assyrian, meaneth not so, neither doth his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. So what was in the Assyrian's heart? They just wanted to destroy Israel. They didn't think anything about God wanted me to do this or that. No, no. The all, so in the human heart, there is just doing what it does. But the human heart, though even the wicked human heart, is playing into what God has determined. You say, that's hard to understand. That's fine. I'm not saying you have to understand it, but I'm just saying that's what it says. Look at Genesis 45 real quick. Verse number five. Of course, this is a reference to Joseph. But notice what he says. Verse number five. Genesis 45, verse five. Joseph says to his brothers, Now therefore, be not grieved, nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither. For God did send me before you to preserve life. Hold on, God sent him? Whoa, 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 whoa. How did he get to Egypt? His wicked brother sold him into, into slavery. And now he's saying God sent him? You see how both are occurring simultaneously? Verse 6, For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in the which there shall neither be earing nor harvest. 
And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth. There he says it again. And to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. Wow, that is plain, isn't it? He hath made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout the land of Egypt. All right, look at chapter 50. So Joseph plainly says that God sent him there, even though the means by which he got there was a sin, a wicked, ungodly sin of his brothers. And then in verse 50, look at what it says in chapter 50, verse 20. But as for you, talking to his brothers, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. Were they innocent because God had determined to send Joseph by their wicked means? Oh no, they were guilty. They were guilty. So here's the principles I want to draw from this. This is just, the apostles mentioned it several times in chapter 2, 3, and 4, so I just want to mention this real quick. Number one, God can use evil, the evil that men invent for good. Men do evil and men intend evil like Joseph's brothers, but God can use what men intend for evil for good. He can take evil and make good. That's amazing. Listen now, that is amazing, especially if you're the one who experiences the evil. God can take evil and do good in your life. That's amazing. Number two, God is not limited to using only good acts for his good purposes. You think, well, good things, you know, God can use the good things that that happened to me. Whoa, whoa, whoa. God can use the evil things that happened to you too. He doesn't have his, in his toolbox are not only good things, but also evil things. And God will use evil for good, not just good for good. Number three, the fact that God uses evil does not excuse the person guilty of committing the evil act. You know, sometimes there there are wicked, wicked minds that talk like the evil that they do because the outcome turned out good in some way somehow justifies their evil. I've heard it with my own two ears. That is vile. That is ungodly. Evil is evil. And whatever good the Lord brings out of it makes no excuse for the evil. Just like with Judas, it, it, was, it, is good for that, it would be good for that man if he had never been born. Number four, evil that men commit cannot thwart or frustrate God's purposes. Because God will turn around and use the very evil. <laughs> I mean, you think of Satan. What was Satan's... Satan's uh, Jesus said, Now is Satan's hour and the, hour and the power of darkness, right? When he went to the cross, that was Satan's hour. And yet, how much good has come out of that? It's an amazing truth. These two things exist simultaneously. Now, let's go back to Acts 4. And we'll, we'll get ready to finish here in just a second. <clears throat> Acts 
verse 29. The specific part of this prayer that is the request. There are three requests in this prayer that this church prays together. Number one is in verse 29. Lord, behold their threatenings. That's the first request. (coughs) The second request is grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. See that? That's prayer request number two. And then I'm just following the grammar here. This, is, this isn't anything super complicated. He says, Lord, and that signs may, and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. Third prayer request is that Lord would grant signs, we know, to confirm the word. And of course, the Lord granted it in verse 31. What I want you to note, though, is that the church did not pray for safety. You see that? I fear that our, if, if we were in their place, probably our instinctive prayer request would be, Lord, keep the apostles safe. Would it not? Think, just think, just be honest. Would, it, would that not be probably the first thing you think of? Lord, keep them safe. The truth is, there was an easy route for, uh, to get safety. Is there not? What is the route to get safety? If they wanted to be safe, w- would it not be easy to be, have safety? How? Just shut your mouth. Don't talk about Jesus. Boom, instant safety. Right? Do you think the apostles wanted safety? Do you think they liked to be hauled in and into prison, detained overnight, hauled in before a council, mocked and, and questioned and ridiculed and all that, made a spectacle. Do you think they like that? Of course not. Nobody likes that. But their primary prayer request was not safety. In fact, they didn't pray it at all. They were unwilling to take safety at the cost of the gospel. What they prayed for was boldness. They prayed for boldness to do the very thing that took away their safety. You see, them doing the will of God, what they understood Jesus wanted them to do, was more important than every other consideration. They were willing to lose their safety so that they could obey the Lord. That's very thought-provoking. Let me ask you a question. When is the last time that we prayed that we might have boldness to speak the Word of God? When is the last time you prayed for God to give you boldness to open your mouth to tell other people about Jesus? Not about our church, but about Jesus. Here's the sad, the sad reality is, for many people, speaking the word of God to others is out of the question. It's not even a thought. And it's certainly not on the radar as a prayer request. 
They're not asking God to give them boldness to speak the word of God to others because they're not thinking about and have no desire to speak the word of God to others. It's too awkward. It's too difficult. But this is what the church prayed. You see here, and listen, please understand the spirit in which I say this. The great majority, just stop it. Ask yourself this. What do you pray about? All right. What do we, corporate prayer, right? What do we pray about? The great majority of our prayers are for those who are sick in body. Now, as a, as a matter of just fact, is that not true? It is true. And we should pray for people who are sick. I'm definitely not minimizing that. But the reality is a great many of our prayers are for those who are sick in body. Let me ask you this question. Considering this, these people's prayer, they asked for boldness to speak the word of God. That's, that was their prayer. How many of our prayers concern the work of the Lord? How many of our prayers concern the mission of the church? That's a thought-provoking question. I know it is for me. Listen to this. I read this by Warren Wiersbe in his commentary. Listen, this is good. The glory of God, not the needs of men, is the highest purpose of answered prayer. Listen. I say this right now, and my wife at this moment is afflicted with illness. Sister Mark is here for the first time in quite a while because of constant illness. Should we pray for them? Absolutely. But that should not be the sum total or even the majority of our prayer. How many of our prayers concern the work of God? Some, somehow it seems our focus has somehow been diverted from doing the work and will of God in the earth as a church and as an individual to the health of the body and financial well-being and physical welfare. And of course, all of us want that. <laughs> all of us want that, bar none, no exceptions but it's a matter of focus and emphasis. Here are some things you can pray. Think about these things. You say, well, I don't know how to pray. How do I pray for the work of the Lord? That's what they're praying for, boldness. That's one aspect of the work of the Lord. What are some things you can pray for the work of God in this church? Listen, the work of God in this church is not my work. It wasn't Brother Stewart's work when he was the pastor. It's the work of the church. This is everybody should have full involvement. We can pray for boldness to speak God's word, like we see here. We can pray for the work of the Lord. We can pray for the lost to be saved. That is, pray for specific individuals to come to Christ. People like Will. People like these others that we've had a chance to witness to and we've knocked on doors. 
We can pray for those who have gone astray from the Lord, like we talked about this morning, that they might be restored. You, could, if you, you wouldn't have to think long, and you could probably think of somebody who used to be living for God and is not now. Praying for them is praying for the work of the Lord because that's the work of the Lord. We can pray for believers to grow and increase in faith and obedience. You know, when you pray that for each other, that's part of the work of God. You can pray for God's word to be glorified and to be spread abroad in this community. Listen, we can't, we can't keep our prayers a little. And again, this is not about Choice Hills Baptist Church. It's not about that. We, should, we can just fade into the background. But wouldn't it be awesome if we prayed and saw God use our little old church to get the gospel all over Greenville? And so the, the word of God is reverberating in Greenville from this, this little church? This congregation, that's the work of the Lord. We can pray for opportunities to speak God's word while we're evangelizing. You know, it's hard to, it's hard to witness when nobody talks to you. <laughs> praying for open doors of opportunity is one way we, we can uh, be praying for the work of the Lord. We can pray for more people to be involved in evangelism. We can pray for more people to follow the Lord in believers' baptism. It's been a while since that's been filled, isn't it? It's been quite a while. Why not pray? The Lord, it's not, a, we're not just grabbing people that we find on the side of the road, walking down the street and snatching them up and dunking them. No, no, no. That symbolizes a work that God is doing in people's lives. They're following Him in, in believers' baptism. We can pray for the Lord to uh, to, to help us engage more people in discipleship. That is sitting down with people and teaching them, training them, mentoring them in spiritual things. We can pray for God to call men and women to serve Him in the ministry. When is the last time, when is the last time that you as an individual or our church has prayed that God would raise up servants of the Lord in the work of God, in the ministry of God to serve Him? When's the last time our church prayed? I've prayed this recently. Lord, raise up a missionary, some missionaries out of this church. Well, I don't know if he could do that. Well, I'm standing here. <laughs> I was one. He can do it. That's the work of the Lord. We can pray that God would send forth laborers into the mission field. We can pray that godly families would be established. And we have a number of people in our church who are single, who don't want to stay single forever. We can pray that God would send them spouses and that they would turn into families with children who would, who would teach their children the ways of the Lord and would teach their children to serve the Lord. That's the work of God. We can pray for our missionaries that we support, help them and praying for those things that they're working, they're working in and on their specific fields. We can pray for sin to be removed from our church wherever it exists, right? We can pray for our church to have unity in the Holy Spirit, to have one mind and one heart so that we can do the work of God without hindrance. We can pray for the children of families in our church to follow the Lord and to hold fast in the faith. When's the last time that you prayed for Allie and for Eli? and for Isaac, and for Ivy, and for Nathaniel, and Seth, and Robert, and Callum, and Victor. 
When's the last time you prayed for these little kids running around? That they would grow up to serve God and live for God. That's the work of the Lord. Pray for their parents to have the, the right, uh, to, to take the time and to expend the energy necessary to teach their kids. We can pray for the people in our church to remain holy, to flee from sin, to be clean and pure. We can pray for the pastor. I need it. And the ministry that he has to the church to be effective and fruitful in his study. I need, listen, I want to tell you something. You might not understand this. I know there's at least one person in this room that understands this. Sometimes it is, it is, it is a serious spiritual battle to find what the Lord wants you to study and to give to the people. It's, it's, it's not just a walk in the park. It's not like you just pick up the sword of the Lord and, and you just get the, the latest outline. You don't ask chat GPT, tell me what to preach on Sunday. <laughs> Sometimes it's a big battle. It, it really is. I could use your prayers. I know that. We can pray that the church, for the church to know and to do the will of God. This church is praying for the work of God. You see that? I just listed a whole bunch of things that, 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 would, that would qualify as praying for the work of God. Here's the thing. We need as a church to have corporate prayer. That needs to be a, a major part of our work together. And secondly, we need to make sure that we are spending time praying for the work of the Lord that we're doing together. And by doing that, we'll have some of the characteristics of what we see in, in the first century church. Let's pray.